So we've all heard the saying, and it's true, get the right tool for the right job. Right, we've all had those situations where, you know, you're trying to work on something and all you have is a big crescent wrench or whatever, you know, and there you are. You're trying to get like a little screw out and, you know, it could take you five seconds, but man, with a big wrench, you're beating on it and before you know it, you destroy it and strip it out. Get the right tool for the right job. Well, you know, the good news is, is the Bible is the right tool for the right job, especially when it comes to life. And it's really the multi-tool of life. It's one of those crazy Gerber tools, you know, like the multi-tools where it has the Swiss, you know, the, the knife and it has the Phillips screwdriver, it has the bottle opener, everything you need. And that's really what the Bible is for our life. Regardless of the situation that we're in or the circumstance we find ourselves, the Bible is able to work effectively to change us and to mold us and to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. You see, the first century Hebrew Christians, they would have found this out. They would have known this as they heard the book of Hebrews read to them. They would saw that the word of God is relevant. It's alive. It's powerful. It was speaking to them. It was speaking specifically to their situation and their circumstances. And later, as we'll see in chapter 4, the writer is even going to give it that famous quote that the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. is able to divide between the soul and the spirit. It's a precision tool. It's like, a, you know, like the scalpel of a doctor. So the word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit, he's able to do some amazing work in changing us and molding us and shaping us. Now the circumstances and situation that these folks found themselves in was in a time of compromise. They were thinking about compromising their faith. They were thinking about setting aside their faith in Christ and returning to Judaism. Now, this was a good idea in the eyes of the Hebrews. You know, really they thought it was a win-win situation for them. You know, they felt, hey, we can go back to Judaism. You know, we can not be open about our faith in Christ. But hey, we're going to still be close to God, right? Because after all, Christianity is a fulfillment to Judaism. Right? We can see things about, you know, the Bible in it. And also, it's great because it would alleviate our suffering. We will no longer be persecuted by the Jews and I, and I believe these folks are probably living in the area of Judea, you know, they would no longer be persecuted by the Jews because they would go back and identify with them. It was really a hostile, you know, a hostile time. It was around the year 64 AD, and the Jews were beginning the revolt against Rome. So it was a patriotic time for the Jews. And by these Christians being Christians, being isolated and excommunicated from the Jewish community, it was tough on them. They were starting to face physical persecution, mocking, ridicule, and all that. And they said, hey, this is what we'll do. We'll just go back. Well, while it seemed like a good idea to them, God, through the writer, says it was not a good idea. And he's going to tell them that here. Now, rather than go back, they were to go forward. They were to press forward because they were on a one-way road looking forward to Jesus, who is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. Rather than return, they were to remain rooted, grounded in Jesus and what, he had, you know, and what he has done for us. They were to focus on who he was and what he has done. And so the writer is going to continue that theme throughout this whole book. And we see it here also beginning in chapter 2. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, Therefore, we must give the most earnest heed to the things that we have heard. So as we all know, the word therefore is a really important word in the New Testament. Often when it's used by a speaker or by a writer, 
it's usually applying or bringing to a logical conclusion what was just previously said. Sometimes it refers to things after it, but majority of the time it refers to what was previously said. And so now the writer is summing up and really applying what we learned about over the last two weeks. He's talking about chapter 1. These believers were to respond to the things that they just heard. Now notice they heard these things. It doesn't say that they read these things. As most of you know, the writers would write these books and they would come on you know, these different books and they would pass around to the churches. And the pastor would go up there and they would actually read these letters to the church. And the folks would have to sit there and listen to the word of God read. They, have, they probably had better attention spans, right, than we do. Think about this entire book read to them. I mean, you know, and then as the Bible began being copied, you know, people would have their own sets of manuscripts. But they heard these things read to them. And so, and they were to apply them. Now, what were the things that they heard in chapter 1? Well, here's a quick review of the last two weeks of the things that we looked at. First, we saw that Jesus is greater than the prophets and also the Old Testament revelation that they gave. The writer said, yeah, God spoke over a period of time. He spoke in a number of different ways to the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us to his son, Jesus Christ, who is greater than the prophets. You see, he is God himself. And he has spoken the words of his father. And he's also a greater revelation in that he is also God. And so Jesus is able to reveal the character and nature of God. When he saw Jesus you saw the Father. He said, when you see me, you see the Father. That's exactly what God is like. And he's really, he is the summary of all of Old Testament revelation. All of the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus, who is the fulfillment to all those things. He said it five times. He said it on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He said it in Matthew 5. Hebrews 10, we'll see it. Um, so a number of times we see that Jesus, you know, is really the theme of the Old Testament. So Jesus is greater than these guys. Also, we looked at the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, angels were a very big part of Jewish theology. The Jews knew that they were powerful, created spirit beings. They did the work of God. They spoke the words of God, such as to Daniel and and Daniel chapter 9. As we'll learn in verse 2, God actually used angels to give the law to Moses, this covenant that Israel had with God. Now, the writer is going to say, hey, while the angels are good, Jesus is greater. You see, Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who created the angels. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's man's only hope of salvation. He's God become a man. He paid for our sins on the cross, died, rose again, and now he ascended. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And we learn that Jesus is actually the promised king. He's He's waiting for the time in which the Father says go and he'll come back with his church and establish his kingdom on this earth. Obviously, it's after the rapture, which is how the church got there. But Jesus is going to come back. To none of the angels did he ever call them his son. To none of the angels did he ever give those promises of the kingdom. And so Jesus is greater than these guys. And so based on these things, the things that we have learned about who Jesus is and the work that he's done for us, The writer says we must give the most earnest heed to those things. Those things that we have heard, we must give the most earnest heed. Now, I love that the writer is not pointing his finger at these saints as a person of perfection to these different, you know, to these sinners. Notice he uses the word we. We must give the most earnest heed. 
And so he's applying himself to this group here. He says, hey guys, I need to apply these things that I'm telling you just the same as you need to apply them to your life. We're all in the same boat, right? He didn't set them, you know, he didn't set himself above them. He recognized the importance of the revelation that he also gave. Now, what his focus is here is, is on an obligation to respond. And that's seen in the word must. He said, we must, you know, apply these things. The word must is the same as the word ought. It's an obligation. Hey, it's not saying, hey, I suggest that you guys really listen because it's kind of important. It's kind of cool. You know, it's kind of doctrinal. Right? No, he says, hey, guys, this stuff is essential. You ought to listen to these things. It's an obligation that you hear them and apply them. The response would take action. Notice they were to give the more earnest heed. The word give implies the fact that they were to respond. And so they were to give their ear to these things and hear them. Not just a casual hearing, but they were to pay extremely close attention, as some of your Bibles might have, to the things that he told them because these things were things that could affect them and protect them. Right? If someone gives you a very important instruction, maybe it's a health instruction, you know, if he's a doctor and he says, hey, you're not on a good path right now, you know, here's important instruction. You don't say, well, I don't really care. No, I mean, you're going to heed those things, right? They're important instructions because they affect you, right? They protect you. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a road sign as you're going. It says, hey, dead end. You're not going to ignore it. You're going to heed those things because that's there to protect you. And that's what the writer was given here. He was given this truth not for just them to hear, but it was for them to listen, to apply, because it would affect them and protect them. And that's really what the Word of God is anytime we approach it. Not just this book, but as you read the entire scriptures, the Word of God in itself is a tool to affect our lives. Listen to some of the ways that the Word of God is described in the Bible. Jesus talked about the Word of God as a seed in the parable of the sower. He said, the sower sows the seed, right, which is the Word of God, and it falls on different grounds. Well, the growth is... In the seed, right? The seed has everything it needs to grow. All it needs to do is be received by a ground that's open and ready. In the same way, the Word of God. The Word of God has the power in it to change your life. But unless you actually receive it, right, it can't do its effective work. Peter described the Word of God like the pure milk of the Word, right? The pure milk, we all know has all the nutrients that a baby needs to grow and survive. It's an amazing right, thing that, that God did in, right, in creation. Right? And, and so, but Peter says, hey, yeah, while the milk has all the nutrients for the baby, the newborn baby needs to receive the milk of the word. Right? If a baby won't eat, it's not going to grow. Same way for the believer. We have everything we need in the word, but unless we apply ourselves to it, we're not going to grow. Jesus said that the word of God is like the bread of life. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a big cob loaf. And I, and I love bread. Bread's an amazing thing. I mean, really, it's just flour and water and oil, right? And salt. You've got to have a salt in it, too. But, I mean, but when you think about it, it's man's sustenance, right? It's really, it's, it's and, and really, and back in the days, that's really what they had to eat. That was their main sustenance, was, was bread, and that's what we live off of as a believer, the word of God. See, I mean, you can have an amazing piece of bread and not eat it. 
You can say you're on the Atkins diet, but I mean, we're setting that aside for now, right? We're talking about the Word of God here. We're to eat on those things. Jesus talked about himself as the bread from heaven. And then he gave an amazing statement. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And people heard that and they're like, whoa. You know, and some left. And the reason was because they were just seeking him for food. They were just seeking him for miracles. But what Jesus is saying is this, is you need to apply the words that I'm telling you. You need to receive me in your heart. Not just follow me for bread. You need to receive me. He's not talking about communion. He's talking about him and the words that he was giving. James says that we need to be not only hearers of the word, but we need to be doers of the word. I mean, it's an amazing time that we live in. I mean, you can listen to Bible studies all day. 6.50 a.m., 11.30 a.m. You can do podcasts from the church. You can even hear our studies in Spanish now and not, you know, and not understand them or learn Spanish. I mean, you can read multiple Bibles. You can go on eSword and have... I have my entire library on eSword, on electronic version. I mean, you can listen to any study you want. I mean, really. But unless we actually apply these things to our life... They're not going to affect us. And that's what the writer says here. Hey guys, you guys have heard some amazing truths, but you need to give yourself to them, lend your ear to them, and apply them to your life. And when you do, it will affect you. But also, it will protect us as believers. Not only changes us and makes us grow, but it, affects, it protects us from having our growth taken away or, or having ourselves hurt in some way. Look at the end of verse 1. We need to do these things lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. Applying the things that, that we have heard and applying the things that these guys have heard would protect them from drifting away. The phrase drift away is a nautical term that implies a boat that is not properly anchored. And because this boat is not properly anchored, it gets slowly carried off by the current, which is going the opposite direction. Get floating out of your mind. I know we're all Central Valley people. We think, that's good, right? It's good to float, right? You get out there in the inner tube and get sunburned all day. Always me, which is why I never go. I'm I'm actually afraid of the river because, yeah. But, you know, so I mean, so this one implies this boat's not anchored. And because of that, it just gets swept away slowly. Gradually, it gets pulled away more and more and more. So what's so bad about floating? Well, this text implies that it leads to danger, right? You're floating, but this current is leading to something more and more and more dangerous. And that's the warning that the writer has given here. Look at verse 2. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So in order to show the danger of drifting away, the writer points back to the angels again. He says, okay, guys, let's go back to the angels real fast. Right? That's what you guys are focused on, right? Let's talk about the angels again. He said, remember how God used the angels to give the law at Mount Sinai? Now, we're not told specifically in the Old Testament that God did use angels, but we're told that in this passage. And the Apostle Paul also said the same thing in Galatians 3.19. Listen to what Paul said. He said, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. And so the word of God was spoken through angels clearly 
to the Jews, to, to Moses, through angels there at Mount Sinai. And the writer says, hey, the law is God's revelation to you. And they all knew that they were to keep it. And in the law itself, it said that if the Jews would keep the law, they would be blessed. But if they disobeyed the law, there would be just punishment for their disobedience of the law. And just as God said, it proves steadfast. Another way that you can say that term is, just as God said, it proves to be sure or true. So God was a man of his word when it came to his covenant with Israel. God acted just as he said, he was just. So when, so when Israel heard these things, they were to apply it to their life. When they failed to do so, they were disciplined by God. Why were they disciplined? Well, because they were God's children and God loved them. And whom the Lord loves, he chastens, right? He didn't discipline other nations. He disciplined Israel. He judged other nations, but he disciplined Israel because they had his revelation. So they had a greater responsibility to respond to his revelation. Now, the disobedience that they were judged for is mentioned in two ways in this verse. First, there's trans- transgression. This is a willful violation of what God says not to do. So God says, do not do that. And you say, well, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. That's a transgression. There's a line drawn here. And I know I'm not supposed to cross it, but I'm going to cross it anyways because I want to. The other act here is disobedience. This is a reference to not doing what God's word says to do. And so God would say, hey, here in my word, I want you to do these things. And they say, well... I'm not going to do those things. So, I'm, so I'm, going to, I'm going to do what God tells me not to do, but I'm not going to do what God says to do. And so for these things, the Bible says in the Old Testament, they received a just reward. They weren't rewarded for it in the sense of, hey, good job. They received a just punishment for it. They broke the law, and so God being a just judge metered out their um, punishment. What were some of these just rewards? Now, I want to say this is not an exhaustive list by, by any means, but these are just some things that you can casually see as you read through the Old Testament. I'm sure there's probably more. I'm sure you can explain these better, but, but here's some things that, that I've seen as I read through the Old Testament. First, there's loss of blessing, such as enjoyment of the land. You see, God, in his covenants, through the Abrahamic covenant, said that the possession of Israel's land was unconditional. It's always Israel's land, regardless of whether they were obedient or not. But Israel's enjoyment of the land was always conditioned on their obedience. And so if, if they were to enjoy the land, if they were to live in the land, then they would have to obey God. If they did not obey God, then God said in his word that he would come and discipline them by another nation and, and take them away. And that's exactly what happened. First to Israel, 722, and then to um, Judah in 586 B.C., also, they would receive enjoyment of freedom from their national enemies if they obeyed the law, right? When they disobeyed the law, such as in Judges, they received um, punishment from their enemies. They were oppressed. Also, um, something else is, is they lost material prosperity. They lost material blessings, right? Their land, you know, it would not grow like they wanted it to. Second, they lost fellowship with God. Sin hindered the Jew from coming and worshiping in the temple. It, it hindered them from their relationship with the Lord. It didn't mean that they lost their salvation. It only meant that they were hindered from having that closeness and nearness to God. 
David didn't lose his salvation, right, when he sinned, but he lost that nearness to God. But when he repented, God restored him back to his position. Third, there was loss of life. Loss of life. Once again, not loss of salvation, but loss of life. At times, God chose to discipline Israel through death. We see this in the death of Nadab and Abihu after the law was immediately established in Leviticus 11. Right after the law was given, here's these guys that came in. They, they violated the law of God and they were struck dead. The house of Korah was struck down. The entire generation that failed to enter the land of Canaan was judged by death in the wilderness. And so, I mean, you know, the list can go on, but the writer focuses heavily on that Jewish generation which failed to enter the land. And they all died in the wilderness. And so, what the writer is saying here is clear to the Christians here. He said, hey guys, look back at the Old Testament. God gave his revelation and there was a responsibility of believers to respond to that revelation. If they did not respond to the revelation, then God being just disciplined his children. Well how, that, well, how does that apply to me as a Christian today? Well, look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so if Jesus and his New Testament revelation is greater than the prophets in the Old Testament, if Jesus and his word is greater than the angels, if God spoke his own word through his own son and gave us the new covenant of grace that was you know, that was you know, that was signed and sealed with his own son's blood how much more do we have a responsibility as a christian to live up to the salvation that god has called us to live the writer says how shall we escape escape what well i believe his discipline just as in the old testament it's a correlation right the writer is making the application now there are good scholars who, such as, like, say, John MacArthur, that teach that the book of Hebrews here is addressing people who aren't saved. And so he says, well, it's referring to people who, like Judas, they're in church, they're hearing the word, but they're not generally saved. And so the writer is saying here, hey, if, if you neglect the gospel, you know, and then you're going to go to hell. And while that kind of solves the dilemma of the fact that we don't have to really talk about believers being disciplined by God, it actually creates some more problems because it really doesn't do justice to the text. For example, the writer associates himself with his audience. He says, we must give the earnest, more earnest heed. So the writer applied himself in this situation. Obviously, the writer is a non, not a non-believer, right? He's a believer here. They were in the same boat as him. And second... How can a person neglect what they don't have? The writer's not talking about rejecting, but neglecting. And the word neglect means to make light of, to not care about, to not take ownership of. And so, and that's what the writer is talking about here. So the writer says, hey, we need to not make light of our salvation. If we do, then we have no escape. Escape of what? Well, it's referring to the chastening hand of God. In this specific context... These Jews would face the physical judgment that was going to come. Jesus in Matthew 23 said because of Israel's sin and disobedience, judgment was going to come on the nation, on Judaism and on the Jews and on their temple. Well, by them wanting to go back to Judaism, they were putting themselves, as Peter said in Acts 2 and 3, back with that wicked generation 
which Jesus said would come judgment, physical judgment. And so I, I think the immediate context supports that. Hey guys, if you go back, you know, you're going to be disciplined. You're going to be disciplined with the nation. You're identifying with them. Which is one reason why Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus in Acts 2. You would no longer be identified with that wicked generation, which would, you know, you would receive judgment, but now you would be identified with Jesus, the Savior of mankind. And so, now we know in hindsight now that that judgment would come. It, it would only come six years later from when this writer wrote this text. If it's written in 64, it could be written later. The judgment come in 70 AD. So God's timing was right on, right on the money. It's written in 64 AD. They want to return back to Judaism. The writer, he doesn't say when it's going to happen. He says, hey guys, the judgment's coming. You know, and, um, and so you need to not be involved in it. Now there are different disciplines mentioned in the scripture for believers. If it's applying to something else. Paul mentions such discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28-32. Here's what Paul said. He says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are sick, are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And so God was disciplining these believers in the church because they were coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? They were coming to the table drunk. They were sinning. And Paul said because of that, God is chastening and disciplining some in the church. Some were weak, some were sick, some were even sleeping. Now the term sleep always refers to a believer's death. An unbeliever, the Bible describes as dead, as dies, but the believer sleeps. The reason that is is because our soul goes to heaven to be with Jesus, but your body lays in the ground awaiting the resurrection when you'll be awakened again at the rapture of the church. And so these believers were sleeping. Some of them were actually having a premature death. The Lord was choosing to take them home. Now, we shouldn't assume that all sickness and all death is a result of some specific sin. That's an error that some people point out. Not all sin, you know, specific, you know, sickness is, is, is a result of a specific sin. All sin is a result of Adam's sin, right, and the fall of man, right? And, um, you, know, and you know, nor can we say that God always judges a person because of a specific sin, I mean, because we know that people, believers live in sin and they're not struck dead or, or whatever. But that being the case, we can't make light of our salvation. God still can, and if he chooses to judge in such a way to discipline believers in such a way. Third, there's disqualification. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He said, but I discipline my body. And bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul looked at his life as a race, as, as an Olympic competition. And he said, guys, I go around and preach. I'm trying to live my ministry like I'm in the Olympics. I'm going for it. But you know what? I need to watch my own life. I need to discipline myself, lest when I preach to others, I become disqualified. Disqualification refers to loss of rewards at the reward, the bema of Christ. One day all believers will stand in front of the reward seat of Christ and will be judged. 
and our judgment will, will be based upon those things that we have done and our motives for why we do them. Anything that's not done for the Lord will be burned away. And so this is serious stuff, right? You and I, we have a great responsibility because we have been given such a great salvation. So the writer, as these guys were hearing this, they were like, oh, okay, we got this, right? I'm, I'm lending my ear now to it. It's, it's a serious thing that he's talking about. And so, you know, we have a greater responsibility because a greater salvation. Now, what is our salvation? Our salvation can be described as God rescuing a person from ruin and doom to bringing them to glory. And that's what it is. God saves a person who is absolutely dead in trespasses and sins by his grace alone, right? And then God saves that person. He places his spirit in them and he changes them daily as they walk with him, sanctify them. And finally, they'll wake up in the image of Christ one day, either at the rapture or at death. And they'll be glorified with the Lord. Salvation is a, is a, is a entire, is really the entire work of God. Often when people think of salvation, they only think of the fact that you're born again. But salvation is referring to the entire package of it. The past, the present, and the future. A person, when they believe on Jesus, they're justified or they're declared righteous and born again. That's the past aspect. So we can all look back at our salvation and know that, wow, because of my faith in Jesus, I've been justified. I've been declared righteous by a holy God by my faith alone. But it doesn't stop there. There's a present aspect of salvation in which God is sanctifying me. He's changing me day by day into the image of his son. That's the present work. And then one day there's a future work in which God will glorify me. I'll be made into the likeness of his son. And I've been given the promise as a believer that will rule and reign with Christ on this earth in his kingdom. And so the writer says, this is why there's such a great responsibility because we've been given such a great salvation. He goes on to describe the confirmation of our salvation in the rest of verse 3. He said, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. So our salvation didn't come from the Apostle Paul. Some writers say, well, Paul made a lot of stuff up about grace. (laughs) That's not biblical at all. The writer says, no, our salvation began with Jesus. Jesus was the one who taught John 3.16. Talked about being born again. Jesus was the one that talked about sanctification in John 13-16. through 16. And Jesus was the one that said he was going to come back in glory in Matthew 26-64. So it's Jesus who established salvation. He was the one who taught it. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The second group that confirmed and affirmed the gospel are those apostles, those who heard Jesus. And so Jesus gave them, you know, gave them the great commission there in Matthew 20. He said, go to all the world and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all things, right, as he said, as I've taught you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the apostles knew that they were to take the teachings of Christ and they, were, and they were to go out and teach the word that Jesus taught them to the people and then apply it to their life. In Acts 2.42, this is called the apostles' doctrine. It's the first thing that the church did after, after they were saved. They stood fast in the apostles' doctrine. They were talking about Jesus and what he's done. And they did breaking of bread and prayers and, and fellowship. Now, not only did the apostles speak the words of Jesus, but their words were backed up 
by miracles, signs, wonders, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this is seen throughout the book of Acts. Now notice all these things were done by the will of the Holy Spirit. And so what the writer is saying is this, is that the focus of the apostles was to preach the word, and it was God who did the work of backing their word up. They weren't going out trying to hold these different revival meetings to to draw attention to the gospel. The focus was the gospel, and God would just back it up with signs, miracles, and wonders. And so, hey, we're all into miracles, signs, and wonders, but God is the one who has to do the work. You can't make it up. Our focus as believers is the word of God, and, and, and if God chooses to see fit, that he backs up our word with miracles, and then, hey, praise the Lord, we're all into it. We need to keep our focus on the word, but not quench the spirit in the sense of despising those things and not allowing God to work through them or even have a step out in faith to see what he would do. Now, there's a, there's a third group mentioned here. The third group is the group that the writer is in. Notice here he says that he received the word from those who heard Jesus speak. And so the writer is saying here that he wasn't one of the ones who heard Jesus speak. And so obviously this would exclude the Apostle Paul from writing this book or any of the 12 apostles. The writer here is saying, hey, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And so he was a convert you know, after Jesus died and, and rose again from the dead. And so it's not Paul, it's not one of the 12. Who is it? I'm not going to give any opinions because it's recorded and it'll stay with you forever kind of thing. But, but I, I, I do have my assumptions, but that's, that's not anything. It's just an opinion. And so, so but whoever he was, he, he received the word from the apostles and he was saved. And then, and then he went out and, and began to grow and, and to teach. Now, you and I are also another group mentioned. Where are we? Somewhere far on that list. But you know what? The gospel spread from Jesus to the apostles, from the apostles to these other folks. These other folks spread the gospel to the other folks. And you know what? Eventually, it made it to you and I. So you and I were all in this group together. We are the, we, are the we in this text, just like the writer. And because we are the we, we must give the most earnest heed to the things that we are hearing in the word of God. We must beware of drifting. Today we call it backsliding. Right? There's a temptation, just like in the book of Hebrews, to be unanchored and to just float. Maybe it's a temptation back to legalism. Some people have that temptation. Us as evangelicals, we're like, really? (laughs) No way. But some people do have that temptation to return back to, say, a a false religion that teaches unbiblical things like Catholicism, which teaches that Jesus needs to be continually sacrificed over and over and over and over, right? To put things before Jesus. We need to beware of legalism and draw on his back. But we also need to beware of the temptation to have a license to sin. You see, the current of our world system involves the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that current never stops moving south. It's always going backwards from where we are. We're pointed due north, focused on Jesus, but that current never stops. There's never a quiet time on the sea of that current. And Satan holds the world under its sway, so he continues to keep this current moving 
right? Pulling away, pulling away, whether it's through evolution or whether it's through aliens, right? All this junk or whether it's through sin, whether it's through whatever. All these currents always want to pull people away through deception, through deceit, and through sin. And if we're not careful, if we're not remaining anchored in Jesus and his word, right? If we just want to float, then what happens is we begin to slowly float away. And we don't even realize it. It's so slow as this current moves away. And before we realize it, we're looking at the other boats maybe around us thinking, hey, I'm pretty good compared to this boat right here. This boat's up here. I'm right here. This, that boat's, oh man, they're way back there. I'm way better than that boat. But if you're looking at that boat, you're not realizing how far away from the dock that you really went. So we need to focus on Jesus and his word. And rather than keeping our eyes on others, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and his word. And not just remain anchored, but to allow the spirit to put his wind in our sails through his power and to press forward against the current, right, to the eternal shore of heaven. And so God in his glory wants to use us to go against the current to affect the world around us, to give that message of hope, to tie others on with us, to take us forward. So tonight, let's hear God's word, but let's heed God's word.